Beloved, once again, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And beginning in verse 5, we will read this entire sort of prelude uh, to the Lord's Prayer as well as the Lord's Prayer itself and focus in this evening on verse 13, Matthew 6 and verse 13. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Thus far the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? O Lord, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds by your spirit, that we would understand and by your grace respond to your word with faith, faith in Christ and trust in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, over the past couple of months, we've learned a lot about prayer. We've learned a lot about prayer and uh, we all know that prayer is one of those Uh, subjects that when you bring it up, there's not a person in the room who's not convicted, Uh, not convicted about needing to pray more, needing to pray better, needing to pray uh, uh, additionally for others. Uh, Our our prayer lives are always needing work, amen? (laughs) Always. Uh, And so this last couple of months, we've been learning a lot about prayer, hopefully spurring us on in our prayer lives. We've We've learned that prayer is a a wonderful and often underutilized gift to God's children. Prayer prayer truly is a gift. Uh, Prayer is a gift from God. Prayer is how we commune with God. It's how we sincerely pour out our souls before God. Through prayer, we offer praise and thanksgiving to God, as well as make our humble petitions known to Him. And our prayers aren't without form or structure. No, we direct our prayers to our Heavenly Father through the merits of the exalted Son by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. We have learned that when we pray in this way, again, Christ says, in this way you shall pray, our Father, we come to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that very form reinforces the good news of the gospel, that it is through the mediation of the Son, it's through the work of the Son, it's through the redemption of the Son, that we are brought back into fellowship with the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so Christian prayer, it reinforces the gospel of grace. Lex credendi, lex orandi. We believe what we pray, the old Latin phrase says. We learn a lot about what we believe in the way that we pray. We learn a lot about what a church believes in the way that the church worships. And so when we pray, our prayers ought to be a reflection of our faith in what the Word of God teaches. Indeed, we learn a lot about a church's belief system by the content of our public prayers. We've also learned that prayer is central to Christian discipleship. Uh, Prayer is central to Christian discipleship. As basketball players shoot baskets and brick masons lay bricks, Christians pray. It's what we do. It's like breathing. We are in fellowship with God. We uh, pray formal prayers personally and and formal prayers with our family and formal prayers in the life of the church. Uh, We also pray informal prayers on our own, in the car, uh, while on a run. We commune with God through prayer. And when we pray, we recognize that we are not changing God when we pray. Again, God knows what we are going to pray even before we ask him. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes us as we call upon the name of the Lord. As we pray, God answers those prayers and he works in our lives and he changes us. By the way, he doesn't always say yes to our prayers. And we certainly know that. But we know we are in fellowship with God when we are hearing his word and we are responding with prayer. We pray and we wait upon the Lord and we trust him. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. This is why Jesus says two times in Matthew 6, 5 and 6, and when you pray, not if you decide to pray. In other words, it is taken for granted in this text, Jesus is saying that we are a praying people. When you pray, not if you decide to pray. Prayer Again, is a privilege and it is a duty of the Christian life. And so it's always important, I think, just to be reminded of the centrality and importance and significance of prayer for the Christian life. I love John Bunyan's succinct definition of prayer. Quote, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ, in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit, for such things as God has promised, or according to his word, for the good of the church, with submission of faith to the will of God. Now, that may not have sounded so succinct, but it's said by a Puritan, and so what do you expect, right? John Owen's definition would be like 10 times as long. You can find that online. Just Google John Bunyan definition of prayer. You can have that definition. It's wonderful. And it reinforces to us, does it not, the centrality and importance of prayer and what prayer is by nature. Notice that prayer, John Bunyan says, is for such things as God has promised or according to his word. 
we do not pray against the will or the word of God. We pray in submission to it. And so we don't pray prayers that are in direct contradiction to the word of God. We pray according to Scripture. So our prayers are in alignment with the truth of God. The disciples, of course, saw in Jesus, their Lord, our Lord, an example in prayer. And so in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, they asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And of course, Jesus taught them by giving them this condensed prayer that serves as a structure for informing and guiding our prayers. Our prayers, as we have mentioned before, too often focus on the passing things of this world rather than kingdom priorities. But Jesus, through the Lord's Prayer, brings us back to kingdom priorities and things that are eternal in scope. Our prayers can be too earthly-minded to be of any heavenly good. If we considered our prayers, for instance, over the past month, would the answers to those prayers mainly give people or us a better life on earth? Or are they kingdom-minded so that they are focused on that which will last for eternity? These are questions we should be asking because the Lord's Prayer certainly focuses on kingdom priorities. And so Jesus teaches us to pray for God's name to be hallowed, to be reverenced, to be respected in our own hearts and in the hearts of others. He teaches us to pray for God's kingdom to come, to not sort of rest in the kingdoms of this world or be infatuated by or drawn to or to dwell in in an ungodly way in the kingdoms of this world, but, but to, to long for the coming of the kingdom through the multiplication of the church on earth and finally through Christ coming back and setting up his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. We pray for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done as er on earth as it is in the resplendent courts of heaven. He teaches us to be prayerfully reliant upon God for our daily needs. Give us this day our what? Our daily bread. And to seek forgiveness from God even as we extend it to others. God has delivered over his own son to deliver us from our massive debt before God, and so we must be ready and willing to forgive the debts of others. This is what we've learned over the past several weeks as we've studied this marvelous prayer, this condensed prayer that's there to inform and to guide our prayers to the Lord. And finally, we come to this petition and lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil, or one could Interpret it, deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What are we to understand by this final petition? How should it inform and guide our prayers as we approach our Christian lives? Well, before we dig in, it's important, as with so many things, to explain first and foremost what this petition does not mean. Because on a kind of surfaced reading of it, there can be some confusion. Some might read this and think, do we really need to pray that God would not lead us into temptation? 
Does this prayer not in some way raise doubts about God's goodness? After all, how could a good God ever lead his people into temptation? These questions, however, are based on a misunderstanding of this petition. We know that God doesn't tempt us to sin because he is holy and good. God never tempts us to sin. He never leads us into temptation in this manner. In James 1.13, James chapter 1.13, it states, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. R.T. France, the Bible commentator, he explains that God does not tempt us to do wrong, but he does test us for our growth and sanctification. God does not tempt us to do wrong, but he does test us for our growth and sanctification. Did you get that? God does not tempt us, but he tests us. That's an important distinction. In fact, some like to translate the Greek word perazo as testing. Lead us not into testing as a way to express that due to our human frailty, we do not want to enter the fires of testing. Again, R.T. France explains that, quote, the point is not that the testing itself is bad, but that the disciples, aware of their weakness, would prefer not to have to face it. O sovereign God, Lord over all, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into testing. But even with this recognition of our human weakness, we know that when testing comes, again, God will use it to strengthen our faith, to grow us, and to conform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. An example of this kind of testing, of course, is found in Genesis 22. We were there this morning, the story of Abraham and Isaac. Here's a clear testing. We referred to this uh, this morning in my sermon on Romans 8.32. Because Abraham says, or God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. And of course, in Romans 8.32, it says that God did not spare his own son. So there's a, uh, a connection there between these two sections of Scripture. But here we see a testing. Abraham was commanded by God to sacrifice his only son Isaac, the son whom he loved, the child of the covenant, to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Abraham, of course, took him up on the mountain and he raised the knife. And he did so knowing and believing, we learn from Hebrews, we learn from the text itself, that God would raise him from the dead because through Isaac would come the line to the coming Messiah. And so he believed that God raised the dead. And so he lifted that, that knife. And of course, the angel said, don't do it, Abraham. And a ram was caught in the thicket. But Adam, Abraham, rather, passed the test, and his faith was strengthened through it. And our faith is strengthened by our consideration of what Abraham went through. And like Abraham, we all know what it is to be tested in our faith. We all know what it is to be amidst the fires of the devil's temptation. And there's one example in Scripture that is so absolutely clear where we see both God leading one 
into a time of testing and also where the devil is there ready to bring great temptation. And it comes two chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 4. Would you look there with me? Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And here we have what is traditionally called the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, don't, don't, don't miss this. The Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, this is another name for Satan, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What's happening here? What's happening here in this text? Why does the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted by Satan? Well, most would interpret this text simply as an example of Jesus overcoming temptation, of responding to temptation with Those three words, it is written, responding with Scripture to the devil's temptations. That this is merely an example of quoting Scripture and standing fast against the devil with God's truth. And this is, of course, an important point. And when we face temptation in life, we we want to have Scripture ready on our minds. We want to be those who are Uh, steeped in Scripture, uh, meditating upon Scripture, under the preaching of the Scripture, so that when the devil does bring temptation to stray from God's Word, from His will, from His promises, we are able to quote Scripture, we're able to think of Scripture and respond to the lies with truth. That's an important point. But dear ones, it's not the main point. It's not the main point going on here. The main point is a redemptive one. It's a redemptive one. You see, there was another man long before this who was tempted by the devil. And his name was Adam. His name was Adam. He was in a garden paradise. He was amidst the beautiful fruit on the trees 
the animals which he had named, his beautiful wife, Eve. He was in this time of probation without sin. And he gave in when he was tempted by the devil. And along with his wife Eve, he plunged humanity into sin, judgment, and destruction. Sin's origins are with Adam, who gave in to the lies of Satan rather than believing God's truth. Rather than stand fast in covenant with their loving and faithful creator and God, Adam covenanted with Satan. He literally made a deal with the devil. Adam believed the lie that Satan had something better for him and his wife and his children and for humanity. Thereafter, they were expelled from the garden paradise. They were separated from fellowship with God and under his curse. This was the work of the first Adam. This is where humanity has been since that terrible day. But thankfully, beloved, that's not the end of the story. There wasn't only a first Adam. There was a, what? A second Adam. A second Adam. The first Adam sinned. And everyone born after him would be born with original sin, would be born with a corrupt nature. Uh, our, Our minds are darkened. Our affections are corrupted. Our wills are are. Uh, rebellious, Um, our hearts are hard. This is why the world looks as it does today. Because of sin that affects every part of us. Adam fell, and when he fell, we fell with him. He, our representative. But thankfully, there was a second Adam, a second representative, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, And he did, he accomplished what the first Adam failed to do and to accomplish and what you and I fail to accomplish every day. That is, he overcame the temptation of the evil one. Three times, no less. Three times. Now, you remember from our study of Romans in chapter 5, this comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam, and the results of both. Look with me at Romans 5, if you have your Bibles. Romans 5, 17 through 19. And here we see so clearly the connection between the first Adam and the second Adam, and why Matthew chapter 4 is so central to our understanding of redemption in Christ, and even of Temptation, as we will see in a moment. Romans 5, 17 through 19. For if because of one man's trespass, who's that one man? Adam. Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The one man, Adam, brought sin into the world, and the one man, Jesus Christ, saves us from that sin. Amen? That's the gospel. Therefore, verse 18, 
as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, namely the life and death and resurrection of Christ, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." It is the obedience of Christ. It is Christ standing fast against the temptations of the devil three times, not in the beautiful garden paradise, but in the wilderness, not with beautiful fruit and food all around and probably with a full stomach, but with an empty stomach for 40 days fasting, not with animals who uh, were named by Adam and who were tame, but wild animals, Christ the suffering servant, the one whom God sent into this world to save us from our sins, he stood fast. He overcame that temptation, thus proving himself once again to be the Messiah, the one whom God sent into this world to do what Adam failed to do and to bring us back into fellowship with God, back in ultimately to the garden paradise one day when Christ returns. So, dear ones, here we have one of the greatest passages on temptation, and it's teaching us that Christ overcame it for us, for our salvation. Adam failed in the garden paradise. Jesus prevailed in the wilderness. It is thus in union with Christ that we receive grace and forgiveness and the strength, thus, to stand against fierce temptation. And so please, please get this, particularly if you are new to the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that while Adam sinned and plunged humanity into a state of misery, and we are all, by our human nature, connected to that fall and misery, there is yet hope in Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the one whom the Father sent into the world and the one whom the Father spared not, but delivered him over, his perfect, holy, sinless son, born of a virgin, who overcame all temptation and went to the cross to be crucified, to pay the debt of our sins, to die for the wages of sin is what? death, he paid those wages for us and went into the grave. And on the third day, even as he said he would do, he rose from the dead, declaring victory over Satan, sin, hell, and death. And so when we place our faith, our trust in him, We are in union with him thus, and we receive from him full pardon for our sins. We receive from him the righteousness required to be back in fellowship with God, and we are promised everlasting life. And so when we come to the great temptation passage, we are reminded of the glory of the gospel, that Christ has saved us from what our sins deserved. And so... When we face temptation, we face it as those who are in Christ, those who have his spirit, those who can overcome temptation 
by his grace, by his spirit, as those who are the beloved of God. We do not earn our salvation by how well we respond to temptation. Salvation is a gift from God, lest any man should boast. But in Christ, by his spirit, we are strengthened to persevere against temptation. And when we do not, not if, but when we fail at times, when fierce temptation rises, we confess our sins. We repent of our sins and we know that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we pray, lead us not into testing or temptation because we recognize our weakness. And praying this prayer, just as praying the other parts of the prayer, keeps us vigilant as it concerns these things. So when it comes, when temptation comes, we are ready We need to be on battle footing, war footing as Christians. We must not be arrogant and think that we are beyond temptations. Paul speaks to this, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13, an important passage on temptation. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Praise the Lord. What a wonderful promise. God will deliver us from evil. He will deliver us from the evil one. And we will stand fast in God's truth and gospel promises as he does. And so as we come to the close of this message, I do want to mention just four ways that we can overcome temptation in addition to the things we've already considered. Number one, a diligent use of the means of grace. It's what our own confession, I believe it's larger catechism question and answer 195 states. It's a long, verbose answer uh, to what does this final petition mean. But in it, it says a diligent use of the means of grace. What does that mean? It it means that we are to be under the preaching of the word, coming to the Lord's table, witnessing baptisms, uh, being strengthened in our faith through the very means that God has promised to use to strengthen our faith, to be with God's people, coming regularly to worship. We are less likely to give in to temptation and to sin when we are under the faithful preaching of God's word and sacraments. And so we come. So a diligent use of the means of grace. Secondly, fellowship with Christians. Fellowship with Christians. Uh, We tend to face temptation better when we are regularly with fellow believers. And so not just on the Lord's Day, but even during the week. Spend time with fellow believers, even if it's just on on the phone or, or whatever. You know, give a phone call to one of the members of the church and check on them and Tell them you love them and pray for them. And, and uh, just be in regular contact with fellow church members. Go out to lunch, grab a coffee, and encourage one another in the Lord. Thirdly, personal worship and family worship. Personal worship and family worship. That's simply spending time reading the Bible in the mornings. Uh, it's, it's the field guide for the Christian life. And uh, we are in wartime, aren't we? We're going to see a quote in just a minute that reminds us of this. And so if we're on wartime footing, we realize we need the Word. 
We need the word because we know when we go out into the day, we will face temptation. And so we open the scriptures, we read the scriptures, we meditate on the scriptures, we, we pray, and we make this a priority as well, not only individually, but as families. Fourthly, fourthly, be vigilant. Take heed lest you fall. I remember when my father-in-law was still living, whenever we would go on a trip, he would always, in a text or if he said it in his speech or with an email, he would say, be vigilant and watch your back. And I often think about that in terms of the Christian life. We are called to be vigilant, to be attentive, to take heed. The, the devil prowls around us like a roaring lion. And this is a part of overcoming temptation is, is being attentive, to be on wartime footing. In fact, Thomas Watson, in his wonderful uh, book on the Lord's Prayer, uh, says this, quote, Stand upon your watchtower. Sleep in your armor. That sounds uncomfortable, but that's what we need to do. Sleep in your armor. That means you are ready to hop up and to fight if necessary, spiritually. Stand upon your watchtower. Sleep in your armor. Always expect a fight. I will put myself in warlike posture. When Satan is beaten out of the field, he is not beaten out of the heart. He will come again. If the devil cannot conquer us, he will bother us. If he cannot destroy us, he will surely disturb us. Therefore, we must, with the pilot, have our compass ready and be able to turn our needle to any point where temptation shall blow. If the tempter overcome, excuse me, if the tempter come not so soon as we expect, by putting ourselves in a defensive posture, we shall have the advantage of being always prepared. And of course, there's a sense in which we have a defensive posture, being ready, attentive to the attacks of the evil one, but we are also on offense. As we are living our lives for the glory of God and staying focused upon him and upon his word and will for our lives, his mission, then we will be less likely to give in to temptation. Beloved, when we pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These are the things that should be on our minds and filling our prayers. We must be vigilant regarding the temptations of Satan and the temptations of our own hearts. And so we cry out to God to guard us and to deliver us, for we know that we are utterly dependent upon him. Sunday evening, at Briarwood Church in Birmingham. Uh, the service was very informal. People obviously still reeling from uh, Harry's home going on Thursday. And there's this wonderful pianist who's elderly, uh, who's diabetic, has a hard time getting around, but when he sits at the keyboard of the piano is masterful not in the more formal Presbyterian way, but in a kind of jazzy, black spirituals way. And 
he began playing a flurry of songs. Um, one of them where he said, Jesus, we're depending on you. Jesus, we're depending on you. Jesus, we're depending on you, depending on you to see us through. This is what prayer is all about. Waiting on God, depending on us, depending on him rather, to see us through. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this brief time in your word uh, to learn about this final petition of this wonderful prayer that you've given to your church, that you've given to us as Christians as a central aspect of our discipleship and our growth and maturity and of our direction and how we ought to call upon you. We know, Lord, this is not an exhaustive prayer. We know this is not a comprehensive prayer, but it is an important and central prayer for the Christian life. Help us, Lord, to make it a part of our prayer lives, what it says and also what it expounds upon. And all for your glory, we thank you for Christ. We depend on him. In Jesus' name, amen.